Here's a quote from the latest video dropped by Prigozhin. We conducted the special military operation to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, but instead of denazification, we turned Ukraine into a country that the whole world knows about, a new Greek or Roman civilization. It's an extraordinary interview with Prigozhin, and we'll be covering that in more detail in this week's review of the news in Silicon Bytes. But in this episode, I'm speaking to an unorthodox journalist who has created some of the most memorable and impassioned coverage of Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe if you like our guest speakers, as it helps other people discover the content we create, as well as the many fantastic Ukrainian experts that you can find on the channel. Please also do consider becoming a patron to help support the work of the channel. Now, John Sweeney will not need an introduction to everybody, but for those of you who aren't aware of his work, he is a British investigative journalist and writer. He worked for the Observer newspaper and BBC's Panorama and Newsnight series. John ceased working for the BBC in October 2019 and is now reporting on the war in Ukraine, as well as creating a daily war diary, which I strongly advise you to watch if you've not seen it. He'll also be working on a film documenting the most brutal parts of the conflict, The Eastern Front, which is to be released in June this year. And John, welcome to the channel. And that film is probably a great place to start. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yes, it's called The Eastern Front. And what um, what's interesting about it is that the, the, the shooter, producer, director, Kellen Robertson, he's in his 20s and he's never been to a war zone before. So every time there's a very loud bang, he jumps a mile and um, um, and I stay absolutely still. So does my friend Paul Conroy, who is basically the wheels. And, and Paul is um, is a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, former uh, British Army gunner um, who ended up taking snaps and being silly. He's a great, great war photographer and famously was uh, seriously injured in Syria um, when the great Sunday Times a reporter and my friend Marie Colvin was killed in Syria. So uh, when the Russian, um, we're close to the Russian army, but the bangs are made by the Ukrainian army, it's outgoing. So I explained to Kaylin, uh, what's happened is ever something's gone wrong. It, it, we're filming in February and our car, which is a, a big old uh, kind of SUV, it's you know, and it's pretty good off road, but it's not good enough for this deep, deep mud. And basically, we get stuck in the mud, and then then this kind of artillery barrage dials up, bang, and Kaylin jumps a mile. And I go, "That's outgoing. That's okay." The difference between outgoing and incoming is this: is that outgoing, it's one sound, and it's okay. Incoming. It's a longer sound because you hear first the explosion of the, and then and then the thing landing. And um, if you're lucky, you can feel it through your boots. If you're unlucky, it's worse. It's quite different. And uh, and then bang. And <laughs> anyway, so part of the strange comedy of the film is that the, the lens, the camera, is held by somebody who's never been through this before. And so it, it's a it, uh, people have watched it. Um, there's a little screening at the Frontline Club and there were apparently, you know, um, there were cheers at the end and also people crying. Uh, the room seats 50 and there was 100 people in the room. So it captures something. And the other thing, we've, we've got three big stories. The first is the Russian use of terror against civilians. So a big block of flats in Dnipro was hit in January. 
and they kill 50 people, including six kids. And it's a massive working class block of flats, um, 10, 10 stories high. You put a big rocket the size of a large minibus into that and you're going to kill people. And Russia has done this again and again and again. And when we go to the Dnipro, we happen to bump in the two mums with their little kids. And one of the mums was actually filming her kids when the rocket hit. Now, everybody was okay, but this is, you know, they know, her children know, had friends who were killed in that. And when the Russians say they don't target civilians, they're lying. Then we do a story about white phosphorus, which is um, a, a, it's an incendiary um, bomb which burns about three and a half thousand degrees centigrade, maybe two and a half thousand hot. And there is a military use for it. It's for masking um, sort of troop movements at night, but it, it's against the rules of war, against the Geneva Convention to use uh, the, these kind of weapons in, um, against civilians. And we properly documented that happening in Hassan. And thirdly, we went, uh, we documented torture and we interviewed a torture victim who went back, and this was horrible for him, but he was a brave and good man. And he, he went back to the torture place in, in, in Hassan where he was tortured. And you can visibly see his distress. The, the, and there's something else that we also find in a, in a separate uh, torture place. We find gas masks. And um, this is called the slong. I'm sure you know this elephant. Um, so the old Soviet gas mask is, is, is uh, green, but the, the corrugated nozzle looks like an elephant trunk. So the, the Russian nickname for it is the slong, the elephant. And what, what um, um, and... In this awful place, there are there are lots of uh, gas masks without the filter. The filter has been taken off. And I first heard about the salon 23 years ago when I did a radio uh, documentary for the BBC about the Russian army's use of torture against civilians. So I first came across this particular torture device 23 years ago. And that'd be Chechen, the first Chechen war or the second or second, so yeah. 2000. Um, and it was so the evidence that Russia uses torture in a systematic way is overwhelming. In my own experience, 23 years ago, I covered the second Chechen war, I go to Chechnya and they tell me, um, Chechen, um, young Chechen um, lads tell me about the slum. Um, and 23 years on, I see these, these elephant masks uh, discarded in the basement of the police station in Kherson, where terrible things have happened. And separately, um, one of my fixers has heard this directly from the um, Ukrainian investigators, war crimes investigators, in Izium, which is a, a, a different place, but they're using that again. Absolutely no doubt in my mind, but they use torture on a whole scale but, uh, basis. And it, it's systematic, it's industrial. So we made the film because there are useful idiots in the West and the most terrifying and most powerful is of course, Donald Trump, who believe the Kremlin's stupid narrative, their fairy tale, their dark fairy tales. 
And so we've made the film and we took the, you know, the risks to life and then simply to say to these people, the Russian propaganda machine, the Russian lying factory is lying to you. It's lying about not targeting civilians. It's lying about not using banned weapons. It's lying about not torturing people. Boy, does it do all three big time. And lying about its motivations for the war. And uh, this, I think, is one of the most frustrating things. I went to a talk yesterday um, that was organised by uh, by Edward Lucas, and it was about grey zone aggression. And they will utilise information. They will use ridiculous pantomime narratives that you think, well, how's that going to work? But they also use narratives that, that do work with many people. And we'll come to the BBC in a minute because... Dare I say, even on mainstream media, uh, Russian narratives creep in. Um, I heard one on Times Radio yesterday. You know, the continued use of the word escalation, the continued use of the idea that if Ukraine engages in psyops or the Belgorod exercise that we're seeing, that somehow that is wrong and immoral. I mean, Ukraine is fighting for its life and needs to use every tool that it can do to survive and ukrainian lives are precious so why why shouldn't they uh you know use every single tactic in the book but you get these all sorts of i would almost call them appeasing uh phrases and narratives even throughout mainstream media even after however many months of you know torture aggression and uh you know uncivilized behavior we see on the part of russia no absolutely right jonathan the problem is that for 23, I first called Vladimir Putin a war criminal 23 years ago when I saw the evidence of, of torture and I saw the evidence of fuel air bombs which are banned against civilians in Chechnya. And I think I was viewed as an eccentric nutter. Um, and I can remember certainly when I was at the BBC, um, I was astonished. After and I did a panorama about the the poisoning with a you know with polonium two ten of Alexander Litvinenko, but the consequence was the four four Russian diplomats were expelled from London. And all that means so Litvinenko was a British subject. He was murdered, poisoned, the cruelest, most barbaric way. An awful lot of Londoners were. Um, there's a, there's a, there remains a serious possibility that they may have um, in some way got contaminated by the polonium. And the British government expels four Russian spies, which means that Putin has to print four new diplomatic passports. And then the same thing in 2018. And the same thing in 2014 with the shooting down of MH17. Yeah. So... On the, what I would say to um, the Kremlin's useful idiots, quite a few of whom uh, are in Britain, um, you have, by your timidity and your lack of understanding of the nature of Vladimir Putin and his regime and what he has turned Russia into, you are doing something and the Ukrainians are paying for it in their blood. So shame on these people. When they talk about escalation, what? What are they talking about? Escalating to what? I mean, I first saw my first dead Ukrainian child a year ago 
in more than a year ago in March, early March 2022, and this was a five-year-old girl who had been blown up by a Russian bomb that missed the key TV tower and hit a row of shops. And I was the first reporter into the, uh, the TV complex the next morning, and I saw the people from the morgue take an old man, child's mother, and a dead child away to the morgue. I saw them put the blankets on the corpses. And, and Russia says, we don't target civilians. Fuck off. Fuck off. And, 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 and the idea of escalation, it, Ukraine is fighting a war like Britain fought a war against Nazi Germany. And, 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 and if you don't understand that, there's something wrong with you. There's something mm. wrong with you. And we took the gloves off. I mean, we didn't. Uh, we didn't have sort of red lines. We did. Well, we can't bomb this. We can't go there. We can't do that. And if you're fighting for your survival, yes. So the heavy decisions were, for example, uh, sinking the French navy because at that point, the French political and military leadership were in bed with the Nazis, and Churchill had a big decision. I've forgotten that. I think it's called Abu. Um, I can. If I'm damn certain I'll, I'll give some kind of uh, Nelson uh, era name to the battle. But basically, Churchill said, no, we've got to sink the French Navy. Bang, we sank it. The worst, hardest decisions are how do you how do you how do you prevent the Nazis from stopping the Normandy invasion? You bomb the hell out of all of the French railway lines. And that meant that the RAF killed, I don't know, 10, 20,000 innocent French civilians. But they did it for a reason. And that's not an escalation. It's because Hitler started the war and then we had to win it. And then having won it, France was, you know, in the process, France was liberated. But, but those are the... That is the nature of fighting a war. So that the idea that um, Ukraine is, is behaving badly um, while its citizens are, are being murdered, while it, the capital, and I'm in Kiev, and you know, pretty much every night there's some elderly Russian ironmongery comes flying in the air and it gets knocked out by Ukraine in their defence. But, but the idea that for Ukraine to fight back like, you know, with all its power, is somehow wrong. And with its That's... hands tied behind its backs, I mean, to an extent, I'm going to, you know, this, um, this is a, a conversation I'm going to have with, with Operator Starsky this evening, actually. So two fantastic conversations today. But throughout this war, I mean, not only did we fail to rearm Ukraine and fail to even give them defensive weapons after uh, the invasion of Crimea, we've delayed and stalled all the way through this year to the point now where efforts scenes potentially are going over, but they're not going to arrive in time to really have any effect on the so-called spring offensive. Um, yeah. And so we continuously it, it, is, you know, it, put it, these it's restrictions. Disastrous. It's disastrous because, because kind of, um, and this is across the whole Western world, but what's happened is that we have shuffled our bottoms too slowly and the Ukrainians are in a problem in that if they launch their offensive without what they want to do is to hit Russia very hard once, and then the Russian army leaves Ukraine. The problem is 
The kit in particular, the F-16s and the Abrahams tanks, because of American timidity, isn't arriving in time. So the, the dilemma facing the Ukrainians, number one, they strike and it goes off at half cock, or they wait. And if they wait, that means that more of their citizens will be tortured, more of their children will be deported, um, stolen from Ukraine. This is in, uh, the kids who live in occupied Ukraine. These children will be stolen and, um, and sent uh, to Russia. God knows what fate. So the, the moral jeopardy facing Ukraine because of our lack of speed and enterprise so it's like watching, you know, you imagine on your beach and you see a child start drowning. And then you you go, you know, should I should I go and try and save this this or you know, maybe a, a dad trying to save his child, they're in trouble. Should I go and try and save these people or should I you know open another bottle of Sauvignon Blanc? Yeah, finish the movie I'm watching and then maybe think about it. Um and and there's another calculation which Ukrainian army have to think about but the Russian army doesn't and that is being profligate with lives I think what's apparent throughout this conflict is that the Ukrainians believe in the sanctity of life the value of the individual and they seem to be um, guiding their military strategies to as far as possible preserve the lives of their troops and their scarce resources the Russians have clearly no such concern yeah, and um, by the way, this is completely standard. You hang out with the uh, Johnson, you know, you hang out with the Ukrainian army. I don't know if you know the story, but on day two of the war, I was arrested by this Ukrainian soldier because he thought I was a Russian spy. And I went, do I look like a Russian spy? And he goes, give me your passport. And I said, you're not a policeman. And he <laughs> he lifts up his, uh, his AK and points it directly at me. And okay, okay, okay. And then, and then as I'm led um, um, to the little command post, and I'm on my own and it's a bit scary, um, I just said, can you just look at my Twitter banner? Can you just Google me? Anyway, that they, 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 everybody's super paranoid, everybody's super suspicious. And eventually, I, um, they call the SBU, the Ukrainian intelligence, and I'm booked into the CDSBU headquarters. They're going to investigate me and check me out. And only then does this guy, his name is Vlad Demchenko, only then does this guy say, um, look, and he sees, you've challenged Vladimir Putin. Yes, I've challenged Vladimir Putin. I used to work for BBC Panorama. And you, you've challenged Donald Trump. He's walking away from it. Yes, I've challenged Donald Trump. And then this guy looks at me and he has a great big broad smile and he says, I think you have an interesting story. So <laughs> now... Uh, then his name is Vlad Demchenko. He's uh, he's been uh, fighting in in the Bakhmut area the last few days. Um, we've we've become great friends. Um, he and I, when it, whenever he's back from the front, we have a few beers. We have lots and lots of beers. I was in back. I've been to Bakhmut seven times uh, last year. Not this year. It got it, every time I went there, it got worse and worse. December was the worst time. But in August, I went there five days on the trot. I was actually staying with the um, with Vlad's unit, and at one point, um, we went to the trench. and The Russian army is possibly 
between one and five kilometers away. So at the most three and a half miles. So they're close. And I'm in a trench. And then somebody hands me a cup of tea. And on the tea, Vlad says, it says, best Ukrainian grandma. Uh, and I'm with an American pal um, of Vlad of mine, uh, Chris Okichoni, he's a great, great photographer. And Chris says, hey, John, you can be a grandma if you want to be. That's why Ukraine is fighting this war. <laughs> and, we're like, and we're all giggling. And, and that's the kind of Ukrainian army vibe, which is, you know, if you can tell a joke in a trench, you're going to do that. In, um, and they, uh, Vlad says, like, when we lose people, we go out and get them back. And the Russians don't give a damn about their dead because it's a horrible, brutal army. It's like, it's, it, 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 it's a gangster's army. Nobody mm. cares if one of the under gangsters, the lowly gangsters are, are, are killed. Nobody cares. The Ukrainian army, Vlad actually went um, out on a special mission, like for a mile in no man's land, heavy risk themselves to bring back the corpse of one of their comrades so that his poor mother had a body to bury. And and, um, and my friend, um, I don't agree with his politics, but he's a friend of mine, Johnny Mercer, who's now in the cabinet for veteran affairs, but came out to Kiev, he was the first um, MP to come out to Kiev. And uh, he saw me, recognized me and he said, Shh, you know, I'm not here. And I said, I know you're not here. But by the way, there's a bar, the Buena Vista. Uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll show you where it is, because uh, and let's um, let's go for a drink later. And and Johnny Johnny's a really good bloke. Um, I should point out that the next I didn't have a flat jacket, or rather, I had a flat jacket with no ceramic plates front and back, which means it's like walking around with a smoking jacket. You need the you need the plates. And his producer Lev Wood who's a bloody good guy too, he supplied the, he gave his plates, or his flat jacket to me, so I had a proper flat jacket with plates. Wonderful. Johnny said, an army that abandons its dead pretty much always loses to the army that looks after its dead. Um, and, and absolutely that's true. So there is a tremendous humanity about the Ukrainian army. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't bullshit. I know these people. I mean, that arrested me on day two, for God's sake. <laughs> but but that's kind of standard. Mm. And uh, and when you, you know, hang it, I mean, I've met, you know, obviously there are bad people in any army or there are bad situations. That's true. But generally, the morale of the Ukrainian army is, I mean, I've been a war reporter since 88, and I have never, ever been with an army with such self-belief. It is massive. They really, really believe in what they're doing and they do it with humanity and they look after their own people. And I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but by and large, they look after the Russian prisoners because it's better for them the Russians surrender and then they can trade them. And everybody in the machinery knows that. And pick up equipment and, and potentially other things as well. Because again, mm. one feature of the Russians is not just do they profligate with uh, their people's lives, they seem to abandon equipment at the drop of a hat. Uh, well, if well, 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 there's a very simple reason for this, Jonathan. Ukrainians are fighting for their homes and they're fighting for their loved ones who are trapped behind enemy lines. That's a really powerful motivation. It means they have great morale. The Russians have been told a lie by Putin. By the way, so we're all clear. I did Russian at school and then I've forgotten it all. Yeah, gloopy non 
Izvini, ja govoru po ruski, kak je spanska koreva, I speak Russian like a Spanish cow. Ja glupi gnom, I'm a stupid gnome. Um, these are just silly joke, uh, last phrase. My accent's terrible. How's your Ukrainian, though? How's your Ukrainian coming along? Of the Putin, Julio. Uh, Putin's a dickhead. Um, so, uh, but I love Russia. I love Russian literature. I, I was incredibly excited when, to, when I went to Russia and all of that. However, after um, a year and a half of this bloody, stupid, awful war, I'm bitterly disappointed by the failure of civil Russian society to really, really challenge Putin. And so there is, um, I knew um, Anna Politovskaya, and she warned that what Putin was doing in 2003 was that he was zombifying Russia. And to, to a horrible ex extent, her prophecy has come true. And Putin at the moment is leading a nation of zombies to commit mass murder. And so uh, if anyone calls me a Russophobe, I will say, no, that's not true. But there is the Russia I was studying, I was learning the language and I studied the politics when I was at university um, in the 70s. It was, you know, embalmed in the dying Soviet Union. But actually it's a less awful place than it is now. Absolutely. And um, I think people, if they if they watch quite a few of the videos here, not only uh, was the Soviet Union more, you know, socially sophisticated, um, there were far fewer political prisoners, far less sort of everyday sort of hassle and terror than you have now. Towards the end. Towards mm. the end. So remember, so like in the, in the reach of history, obviously, Stalin... Um, here's the problem is that Stalin's evil was never properly washed away in a way that um, after, um, after the Nazis were defeated, there was a serious attempt in West Germany to de-Nazify the country. Now, it wasn't perfect, and you can have an argument about it, but that did happen. In, when Yeltsin took over, there was um, an opening, a flowering of civil society in Russia, but it wasn't a de-Stalinization. So people like Putin and Putin's bosses back then in the 70s had been allowed to get away with mass murder. And everybody can, could remember that. Everybody's Russian grandma will remember the terror. And so therefore, what, you know, so there is a problem with the legacy there. But it's also absolutely true. Last time, I, well, one of the times I was in Moscow, I can remember my fixer saying that um, one of the older dissidents said it's far worse under Putin than it was under under Brezhnev and then the geriatrics. More of my friends, said this guy, have been shot under Putin than were locked up under the old system. And, and they, so yeah. it, it, this is something that, that the, the useful idiots in the West, and, and there's an awful lot of them, and by the way, there are some dire useful idiots. Um, Peter Hitchens, Donald Trump. Um, one is... Trump is far more powerful than Hitchens. But nevertheless, I, I was on a, a, a discussion on um, radio, uh, Northern Ireland, Radio Ulster, uh, BBC Radio Ulster yesterday, and Hitchens was full of, 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 of nonsense about how horrible war is. Yeah, but Putin started it. And Putin can stop it by leaving. And, and, but, but, you know, yes, of course, war is horrible. I know that. 
But at the same time, my father fought in the Second World War in the Battle of Atlantic to defeat, to help defeat Nazi Germany. And he was a ship's engineer and on a tanker bringing oil um, to Britain to for hurricanes and Spitfires. Now, and and they would, and those machines were there to kill um, Nazi airmen. But there was a reason for that because they were trying to invade Britain. So this is something Ukrainians understand, isn't it? Ukrainians yeah. understand even now in a way that I think uh, many in the West still don't understand is that if Ukrainian town is occupied, then anybody who has an association with the army, anyone who has a relative in the army, anyone who's been in the civil administration, the intellectual elite, writers, poets, teachers, at worst, no, at best, they'll be tortured. At worst, they'll be liquidated. And yeah. this isn't, you know, an accident. This is a strategy which has echoes throughout, you know, the Soviet past. Yes. Um, I'm, um, you know, I've written this book called Killer in the Kremlin, which sets out a lot of this stuff. But I have just completed, um, ah, ha, ha, he's uh, showing a copy. Very nice. Very good. Lovely. Thank you, Jonathan. But I've also just completed a ghost finger book. I've helped Aidan Aslan write it. Now, Aidan Aslan is a, is a, a British um, um, lad from Nottinghamshire. He comes to Ukraine. He joins the Ukrainian army. He's in the Ukrainian Marines, the Ukrainian Marines. And he is um, captured in Mariupol. He is not Azov. There's two steelworks in Mariupol. He was the Illich steelworks with the Ukrainian Marines. He was captured. And the moment um, they um, someone sees his British passport, he's punched on the nose. Um, the Russians know exactly who he is, and they give him to their quizzling Ukrainian allies who um, populate this joke state recognized by North Korea and Syria called the Donetsk People's Republic. And, um, and he is beaten unconscious and stabbed. And this torture means that he's used as a propaganda toy. Down the track, he's sentenced to death. And a book is called Putin's Prisoner. It's out on July 20th, but it documents what happens to him. And there's a friend of mine who's doing a little, uh, who's Ukrainian, who has interviewed, um, she's a, a, a filmmaker and she shot a little um, a film with Aiden for, for Penguin or for somebody else. And she says, actually, what happened to Aiden wasn't that bad. <laughs> I can't, he, was like, he, was, he was beaten senseless, so he lost consciousness, and he was stabbed. So, I mean, and, 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 and by the way, I know that's true because I've interviewed lots of other people, and I, certainly the, the tortures they used in Chechnya were, were terrible. Um, so, so the thing is, the reason why the Ukrainians want to liberate all of Ukraine is if they don't, then there are some of their, their, their brothers and sisters who will be subject to torture or rape or castration. And, and, and you cannot, no civilized human being can be comfortable with that option. And, and I want to, I, I kind of want to say, you know, to people like this, okay, so you think, you think some kind of peace deal with Putin is going to work because you think he's reliable and you think it's good 
that there will be people who are who are stuck inside greater Russia who are Ukrainian who could be castrated or raped or shot or killed but that's fine that's fine for you because you think that's good then there's something wrong with you and I've had this you know there was a period I've blocked it now because it's not not great for mental health but there was a, a period where I was 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 trying to tackle um uh, Mr. Hitchens about uh, you know the Russian narratives he was repeating, and I genuinely don't believe he's getting paid for this. So he's not one of those agents or assets. I mean, he's genuinely a, a useful idiot. Um, but tackling one in particular was this idea of Russian speakers being repressed uh, in the East, and that one yes. still does the rounds. Um, and no matter how much you explain, like I have spoken to Russian speakers in Mariupol. I've spoken to them in Russian, and I can tell you this is bullshit. I mean, but it still yeah. sticks in I, some quarters. I speak, um, my, I did Russian at school, so when I talk to people, I speak Russian. Nobody minds. Um, but, but that's the minor thing. What Hitchens does is he comes up with a whole series of, 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 of I mean, he talked to me about Lord Lansdowne in 1916, and, and and like so, what's nineteen sixteen got to do with Vladimir Putin and his aggression? By the way, um, I see we've only got about twenty minutes left, yes. or something like this. You mentioned something about the BBC. What were you going to ask me? Yes. Oh uh, well, this this is one of the reasons. I mean, I'm not a journalist, uh, nor I'm a historian, academic, um, but what I do, do you study think living. You drive uh, the cab. I'm. I'm no. I'm. I'm. I'm one of the enemy. I do uh, commercial propaganda, marketing. <laughs> yeah, well, well. As, I, as I describe, I sell I sell uh, shit to people for money they don't have. Yeah, shit they don't need for money they don't have. Um, but it's a form of brain hacking. It, you know, you have to get inside the nuances of language people use in search engines and then reverse engineer that to try and sell them something. Um, so that was, you know, that combined with my interest in the digital techniques that are being used to weaponize social media. Um, and Dare I say it, this will annoy some of my audience here, but since 2016, believing that there were active measures in place in the US and the UK to try and hack our institutions, try and destroy credibility of our institutions. What, what, that's a fact. I mean, and I have, a frustration I no with the BBC, dare I say it. At that point, I started to get disengaged from BBC output because I felt at best it wasn't addressing the real issues and at worst it was repeating some of the, the worst narratives. So um, I love the BBC. The BBC has helped entertain and educate and inform me my entire life. Um, and I worked there for 17 years. Towards the, and I, and I had some very, very, very happy times, um, but, but it ended badly when I was, um, uh, secretly filmed by uh, a supporter of Tommy Robinson, uh, a woman who had actually been threatened by his supporters because she'd fallen out uh, with him. And then um, she, and I was whining and dining her. I, as a BBC reporter, I can't give her any money, but I can whine and dine her. And also it was a kind of display of confidence. When you're doing this kind of stuff, you, like this woman was a Nazi or a neo-Nazi. She had swastika earrings. I, did, I found that out later. She wasn't wearing them when I met her. But part of what you do to try and get these people on side is you kind of, you have to cozy up to them. 
you cannot meet these, you can't meet neo-Nazis in a meeting room over a glass of mineral water. Anyway, as a result, I, um, I, uh, Tommy Robinson did a film showing me drinking too much. I, I believe he gave this woman £7,000. And honestly, to see, to get a film of me drinking too much, you could do that for nothing. Like, buy you a couple but, of bottles of wine, surely. And... <laughs> yes, but but uh, Tony Hall, uh, the then Director General, um, hated it, and they got rid of me. Mm. Um, but that happened. Still, I still pay the licensee. The BBC is a, big, uh, a good thing. However, I did have a serious problem with the way um, the BBC Moscow office ran its operation. I had a problem with uh, Steve Rosenberg is a nice man, but I think that he's he did not tell the truth um, about Russia. And the BBC Ukrainian service people used to come to me and say, John, you're the only one. So um, the panorama, remember, I'm based in London, so it's easier for me to do this. But there was a problem with the BBC Moscow Bureau. And what happened to me in, in particular was that when we made our film Taking on Putin, which is about Team Navalny and various people who, who, who were anti-Putin, or one of them was tasered and stabbed another Navalny supporter was beaten over the head with an iron bar. Navalny himself um, poisons now, now in prison, um, obviously. And at one point, we filmed Andrei Soldato, who's a very good man. He's now in London. He's on the channel. People should check that out. I've interviewed him. He's uh, phenomenal. He's a good, yeah, he's a great guy. And anyway, we interviewed him. And as we were interviewing him, we got a phone call saying the Moscow police want to interview me and Seamus McCracken, my cameraman, our cameraman. And, and we've got the rushes of the Soldatov interview. And I don't want to go into a police station with those rushes. No, they're tiny. They're on the film card. So I said, let's go to BBC Moscow. We'll go there and um, uh, drop off the rushes. And then we'll go to the police station. It's the ethical thing to do. And... The, the, the bureau chief is away. The stand-in is Will Vernon, who is Steve Rosenberg's mainstream producer. And Will Vernon isn't there. He's in Siberia, but he takes the call on, um, on his mobile and it's on speaker. And um, because the people who run the bureau in, in the absences, they say, no, we don't want to do this. And Vernon says, take your rushes and get out of the bureau. And that happened. That's insane. And I left the Russians with a Russian who's a friend of mine. And then I went into the police station and I was detained for the afternoon. And the police took a photocopy of my passport and guess what? My passport appeared on Telegram. Um, and so and Seamus is good, so we both had to cancel it. And the moment I left the police station, several hours later, after a lot of nonsense, we were doorstep by uh, Patsy Kremlin TV. I was in a bad mood. So actually, I, um, I uh, gave this idiot reporter from Russian TV a lick with a rough edge of my tongue and, and Seamus filmed him on his camera and the, uh, the Russian media ran away from us. But the lasting memory of that was that Will Vernon effectively I thought had been captured by the Kremlin's propaganda machine. And rather than help a BBC colleague, went out of his way to make our lives far more dangerous 
and more dangerous for our, for our sources. And um, probably worried about getting access to officials, worried about, uh, you know, being able to carry on their well, work, which is the well, same well, with Vindictive and the sort of hybrid media beast that uh, Putin managed to create. So, so if, let me, um, it's important to have a right of reply or to reflect it. So I think that they thought that I was jeopardizing their work and therefore they weren't willing to um, to back me at all because, um, and, and, and that was their argument. The problem was down the track that the BBC bosses sided with Vernon and not me on, on, on this issue in a way which I found infuriating. And also the, the big picture is that if you watch Steve's reporting you would have been surprised when Putin invaded Ukraine over, over the peace, over the, let's say, mm. over the, I don't know how long he's been there, but he's been there for at least a decade. If you watch my panoramas um, and all my reporting from the first, from the, the first uh, radio documentary I did about the Russians' use of torture in Chechnya, the film about Litvinenko, the film... Um, about the the Russian Olympics, and then the uh, uh, appalling treatment of Navalny, you would completely got it. Yeah, that there is no, and and therefore, I think the BBC Russia service was compromised somehow, either by the Russian secret state or by um, its need to stay inside working in Russia to an extent that they compromise journalism. Oh, you know, no, no, but even, big... you, you see this in academia as well. And um, you By see the way, the... that's a big, that's a big allegation. And because of the yep. nature of this podcast, people should be open to the possibility that I am, I have lots of bees in my bonnet. I do have lots of bees in my bonnet, but I do not think that for Will Vernon to say to me, take your, um, your um, film cards and get out of here was right and proper and I do not think it was right and proper for BBC management to side with him rather than me and that happened. And of course the person you're interviewing is is a verified expert, it's not you're out on the street interviewing and, some nut job and, and he would have got into trouble if um, like if, if, they, if they'd caught you know, that stuff on us mm. but, but the problem is what I'm trying to address here is the thinking, the mindset. I thought uh, when that happened, I thought it'd be far better for the BBC uh, Moscow, Russian service to be based in Riga, or at least you could. And and my, my friend, the uh, professor Donald Rayfield, has written this wonderful book uh, called Stalin and His Hangman. But he 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 says the same thing. But uh, and he said this in 2018 that the BBC Russia service has been compromised. Mm. By the way, I you know, hats off to people like Jeremy Bowen and Clive Murray um, for their reporting from Ukraine, uh, because their war reporting from Ukraine is brilliant. But what we're talking about is in the in the in the decade running up to the war, when Putin clearly was becoming more and more fascistic, and I had, I mean, I uh, I was allowed to call, um, I was allowed to say Navalny could say Russia is a police state, but I couldn't. I couldn't say that Putin was fascist, and actually he was. And it's not 
you know, it's not unique to the BBC. A lot of academics have either had their organizations penetrated or they've had awards, prizes, events. They've had all the sort of gifts and perks which have, uh, you know, put undue influence on them or, or they've and just gone native, you know. And politicians. Mm. So, so, so um, let's have a look. So in 2005, Lord Mandelson, Peter Mandelson, goes to Siberia with Nat Rothschild and Oleg Deripaska. Then in 2008, Mandelson and George Osborne go on Deripaska's yacht. Deripaska is a gangster. Um, he's been sanctioned by the Americans for his connections with organized crime. And everybody knew that. Now, by the way, the Americans sanctioned him later, but everybody knew anything about Russia would have avoided Deripaska, like the plague, but not these two. And they're powerful people in, in, um, in British politics. What happens is that after, as, as the heat from Moscow, from the Kremlin, gets worse, the taking money from Deripaska or people cl really close to Putin becomes wrong. And so what you have is an outer circle of Russian oligarchs who were not visibly close to Putin. And they're the people, for example, who fund the conservatives. Because, because these are really anti-Kremlin oligarchs. Stop there. There is no such thing as an anti-Kremlin Russian oligarch. They are all pro-Kremlin because if they're not, they're dead. It's a puppet show, isn't it? it uh, including the Parliament and all the other institutions. It's a complete, complete fucking puppet show. So the, 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 the big anxiety, you know, when the big war happens, Boris Johnson is good and the Ukrainians love him for it. And his, the great thing is he symbolises, you know, we're on your side and it mattered and that was good. The problem is in the run-up to the war, Again and again and again, Boris is on the side, effectively, of the Russians against the Ukrainians. And he's got a relationship with Alexander Lebedev. Alexander Lebedev was in the KGB from 1988, and he left when? Well, you never because leave the KGB, right? Yes. So that's your Ochen Koroshov. Very good, very good. Vladimir Putin himself has said, you cannot leave the special services. Now, what's the quote? Do you know the uh, precise quote in Russian? Uh, no, I don't know it word for word. I'll no. probably just mangle it. But it's like Hotel California. Yeah. You check out any time you, you want, but you can never, ever leave. So officially, Alexander Lebedev left the KGB in 1992. Did he? Did he really? I don't think so. I think he still swims... Um, in that river and he's the guy who hosts these bunga bunga parties in the Palazzo Terranova in Umbria and his idiot son is the um, um, is is around his name is Yevgeny um, and or rather his new title is Baron Siberia okay there's a clue there folks in the name so Baron Siberia is is Boris Johnson's official friend, 
but he's an idiot. When the, the, he interviewed Lukashenko, the uh, the pig pig farmer dictator of Belarus, um, and my friend Nath uh, Natalia Tarakan, I think they call him locally. Yes, well, also, but he but he was a pig farmer. Um, but they, uh, my friend Natalia Antalava was there also because Yevgeny was doing something with Newsnight and they sent uh, Natalia along to keep an eye on Yevgeny. And Yevgeny asks Lukashenko, what's your view of group sex? What? So, um, I mean, the guy is a child. Natalia thought, you know, this guy's got no substance. The important figure is not the, the boy. The important figure is Alexander Lebedev, KGB spy from 1988 to dot, dot, dot. And Boris, so Boris's relationship with the Lebedevs is frightening because when he was foreign secretary, he was one of the people who was sorting out NATO's response to the Skripal poisonings. He goes to Brussels and he goes from Brussels and the next place he's seen is Perugia Airport because he's going back on a flight to London, having um, been to a Bunga Bunga party, party thrown by the Lebedevs. Did anyone ask him what NATO's going to do? I.e., are they going to throw the Russians off the economic system, the SWIFT banking system? Or are they going to expel a lot of diplomats? They expelled a lot of diplomats. Mm. So, so there's now, of course, Boris, you know, Boris Johnson denies any wrongdoing. The KGB deny any wrongdoing. The the Lebedevs say um, that they're the victims of Russophobia. That's nonsense. I mean, this is my big worry to, to sort of look at where this is going in the long term. Some of the Kremlin's lies are, um, you know, so apparent to people that uh, you know they won't forgive them for now. But as soon as Ukraine is victorious. As soon as the next regime in Russia, the next set of sort of parasites or mosquitoes land to get their fill of blood, they will, I fear, try to make some cosmetic changes. And there'll be only too many people, including the mainstream media, dead keen to line up and whitewash any new Russian regime and, and start trading in the kind of fashion you talk about and use these sort of outer layers and individuals and whatever. And that whole system will perpetuate itself uh, into a, another generation. Well, well so the question is what happens next? And um, what you've done uh, just outlined there is the uh, is the most likely um, uh, sequence of events, which is uh, gloomily uh, pessimistic and probably more likely. My view is that we should play tough with Russia until Russia is led by a, a Willy Brandt figure who has the moral courage to go to Mariupol and, um, um, and the other mass graves and say and get down on his knees and say we are sorry and also we're paying to rebuild ukraine and and i think it's nonsensical that at the moment the west is sitting on 300 billion dollars of of russian gold which is they put in the west for their own reasons and that money should be in the hands of ukraine as we speak um, one of the things I'm trying to do with my life is I'm trying to become a liberal democratic MP. 
um, because I think neither Labour or Conservatives were, both of them were morally responsible for creating a climate in which Putin could launch this big war. And I want to burn down Londongrad before Moscow and the Kremlin burns down London or the city of London and the London and the British economy because of, because Londongrad, which is where Russia hi, uh, hides its dirty money, is rotting mm. out of our country and, and our country, Britain, from within. Which constituents um, are you going for? Because, of course, Ed Lucas is going for the Westminster uh, Ward. Well, I, I'll go somewhere. Um, I, I want to go somewhere lots of um, really good, somewhere in the countryside. Somewhere lot, it's down to them, not to me. But hopefully somewhere with lots of nice cider and deer parks and everything. Um, Fantastic. Well, we've got Leila Moran in my local constituency, so I am I am blessed to uh, actually already yeah, have yeah, yeah. a lived so, MP. Yes. So um, I'm um, anyway. That's I don't want to listen. Yeah, that's ben a Wallace, trick. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Wallace and Johnny Mercer have been brilliant and good on them. Um, and um, Liam Byrne, uh, the Labour MP, has been brilliant in terms of calling. Um, London grad libel actions to accounts um, as a Bob Seeley, as a David Davis. So part of the attraction of the Liberal Democrats is um, because of Trump is so loathsome about his political opponents, uh, uh, there are very, very, very good people who understand how bad Russia has been who are conservative and Labour. So I don't want to make a political party political point about it here. But, but I think the Liberals have got less... Um, dirty linen um, than the other big parties. Um, that's a fact. Mm. Still, um, now I'm going to run out of batteries soon. So I that's should- That's fine. Wind... We probably should wind up on a- But we should have a thought. It shouldn't be about British politics. It should be about what, how, ask me maybe if you want to, how does the war end? That, that's one which historians who I often speak to loathe that question, but I think it's a good one because there seems to be still wishful thinking, pinning hopes onto Russian heroes, onto the so-called sort of liberals. If you speak to most Ukrainians, they will, you know, gag at that thought. So you have the Ukrainian version, which is Ukraine is a fortress, is the new bastion of democracy, and you built a freaking high wall uh, to keep the Russians out. And then there's wishful thinking on the West. Between those two extremes, where do you think we'll land? And, and also the third option, of course, which is Zed patriots, turbo nationalists, and a, a new, even more extreme Russian fascism. I don't know where you land on, on that. Well, that's the great anxiety, because the, the great anxiety is um, goodbye, um, goodbye Putin, and then, the, you know, like, uh, no more uh, Mr. Nice Guy, whatever. Um, my view is that Russia is the money in Russia is upset and angry because of this stupid war. The money used to be able to park its money, um, its ill-gotten gold um, in London grad. That's becoming more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult. Number two, they used to send their bastards spawn to Eton and Winchester. That's becoming more difficult. And they used to park their yachts in the south of France. And all Russia doesn't like the fact that they can't go on holiday to, to Cyprus, to France, da 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 And that, I believe, should continue until 
um, there is a, a good Russian leader who says, we are sorry and we are paying to rebuild Ukraine. And so if a turbo nationalist pops up, we'll say, well, listen, okay, the sanctions continue. Everything continues until um, you come up with somebody better than this. And we've got to be tough about that. Because in part, because the Chinese will be watching. Mm. But I think that that um, I'm confident that the Ukrainian army, when the time is right, will launch its counteroffensive. And when that happens, they will go through the Russian army like a knife through butter. And that Putin's days are numbered. The Russians don't like their czars to lose wars. And when they do, bad things happen to them. And so there's a history of all of that. But 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 uh, in the future, but the, where you have to judge this is, we must support Ukraine liberate itself. That is the primary objective of the West. And if we go down this rabbit hole, is well, like the consequences may be bad. Yeah, they may well be bad, but we don't know that for certain. But actually, what's worse right now than Vladimir Putin staying in power? Because I believe, um, and there is some evidence for this, but the evidence has not been properly examined because nobody in power has wanted to examine it. But I believe that Brexit was a Kremlin goal. And I believe the Russian dark state worked towards Brexit in the way that the American intelligence community completely accepts that Donald Trump was elected um, in part by the efforts of the Russian secret state. And then there's the wars, the war in Chechnya, the war in Georgia, the war in Syria, and then two wars in Ukraine. So, okay, I can't see a Russian leader who is worse than Putin um, at the moment. And to say, oh, you know, Putin's Mr. Nice Guy is to understand the fact that, you know, Vladimir Putin isn't a killer, Jonathan. He's a serial killer. Mm, psychotic it's serial like, killer. It's like negotiating with Fred West. You know, I, I think the patio is a bit uneven. You know, could you do it again? No, 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 no. So, um, um, so what, the simple, clear thing we have to do is help free Ukraine. And then we have to say to the Russians, You've got to, if you want to come to our countries on holiday, if you want to trade with us, then you have to believe in the rule of law and you have to, uh, you have to say sorry to the Ukrainians in a serious way and you have to pay them an awful lot of money for the terrible damage that you've done. And like the Germans after the Nazis, you have to be humble. Now, what effect that has on the Russian psyche, I don't know, but frankly, I don't care because it's beyond. And, and the other thing, this is also a message to the Chinese, because the other great thing the, the Ukrainians have done is they have sent the Chinese a message, which is do not upset the democratic bear. Because actually, although we've been slow and, you know, you could, uh, listeners will be able to hear my anger at the beginning, it's also true that everybody, all the big figures in the West have stuck together and far too slowly, but they have done it. They are supplying Ukraine with good, their good Western logistical kit, and that's good. So the other way of seeing, or a good positive way of seeing this is that China is, I think, 
far less keen on invading Taiwan, although, you know, you know, Xi would love to if he could. But he's worried about sanctions and he's worried about a free Taiwan fighting back like the Ukrainians are. And he's worried about all of us saying, well, we stand with Taiwan. It raises the price. It raises the cost of aggression. And that's something yes. we didn't show to Putin uh, yes. until last year. Yes. So the, the point is this, is that after 45, the, the settlement was do not invade another country unless you've got a bloody good reason. Now, Sierra Leone, I was there um, and I thought it was entirely just for the British and American Marines to try and get rid of the hand choppers in Sierra Leone. And I was there in Kosovo. I was also, I'd seen what Saddam had done to the Kurds, but I now realize that, um, that the invasion of Iraq was a mistake. And, and, and the reason it was a mistake is because it made Putin's case easier. Because from now on, the policy must be simple. Democracies must not invade other countries. And we need to get the tyrants to understand that too. And so the best way of, of forcing China to a road of at least, to the road of the, the best we can ask from the Chinese at the moment, the Chinese Communist Party is acceptable behavior. And they're not doing that internally, but do not invade Taiwan. My battery will go to sleep soon. That's it. We should probably give our greeting to Vladimir Putin. I should say my thanks to you, John, as well, for a fantastic conversation, which I've been, uh, you know, essentially looking forward to for many, many months now. This is a, a huge pleasure to speak to you. Um, well, let's let's give the, the traditional greeting to Vladimir Putin. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in English. You can do it in, in, in Russian. <laughs> Vladimir Putin, idi nahui. Vladimir Putin. Do fuck off. Well, that, that got the video demonetized right there. We'll keep it in. <laughs> John, thank you so much. And Slava Ukraini. Slava Ukraini. And um, folks, my two books, um, Killer in the Kremlin and Coming Soon, um, Putin's Prisoner. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll put links to those and, of course, to the Eastern Front premiere that's coming up. Thank you.